and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we are looking at Minute 86, which begins with Hudson complimenting Bishop's good idea and ends with Bishop crawling through the conduit. Yeah, Mitch, thanks for coming back again for a second week in a row. I appreciate uh, having you back. It's nice to be here. We have a guest with us. Cinematographer and filmmaker Todd Norris is here to talk about the unfortunate name Dick Bush and all sorts of other things. <laughs> I'm very, and on that note, I'm very glad to be back. I haven't been back since like minute 10 of the original Alien Minute podcast, right. so this is great to be back. I have, to, I have to ask you, do you remember when you – were you a VHS Aliens person or did you, did you get to see Aliens in the theater? No, no. I was one of the ones that saw it. In a theater, I'm of that age that I, uh, I I saw Alien in a theater, and then I saw Aliens in a theater in in the order that they released. So well, your stepdad took you to see Alien, is that right? That's I'm right. Remembering the story, yeah, correctly. I got out of school to to go down to the Midland Theater and see Alien, uh, and I, I don't know what possessed him to do that, and it scarred me for years. Where did you see aliens? Uh, so I was living in Denver at the time, going to school there. So I went with my two best friends in high school, and we went to, you know. I don't remember what, honestly, I, I'm really good normally about remembering exactly what theater I saw things in. But the first time, it was just some theater downtown in Denver um, that I downtown. saw it. Yeah. It wasn't the Mayan, was it? No. I, it uh, might have been the Cooper or something uh, like I that. See. If anybody in, that's not around If anybody anymore. in Denver remembers what theaters it, were, it was released at. But uh, I do recall the third time I saw it. And if you want, I can talk about that because it was kind of an interesting time. I told yeah. Mitch a little bit about this. So, okay. So, obviously, the fact that I saw it a third time in its first release was probably a clue that I really liked it. I mean, that's why I'm doing yeah. this podcast, of course. Uh, so, second time, I don't remember who I saw it with, but the third time, I saw it with my stepmom's sister's husband. So, you know, sort of an in-law who I'd never really met. They were from out of town. They were coming to Denver to visit. And uh, this guy wanted to go see a movie, and I said, hey, you know, Aliens is really good. Let's go see Aliens. And uh, so he, he and I went to the Continental Theater, which, Mitch, I think you saw. I saw Star Wars. Star there. Wars there. Yeah. It's a big, curved Cinerama screen, 70-millimeter print, Dolby 6-track stereo. Um, and so the guy, and I, I, feel, I don't remember his name, but, but uh, this sort of relative of mine, as we were driving there, it was a little bit creepy. He was really puffing himself up, like talking about his high school female conquests and stuff. It was really awkward and really strange. And he, you know, he was kind of puffing his chest out like, oh, this movie won't scare me. You know, what? and I'm like, it's pretty intense, man. It's, it's really good. So uh, after that awkwardness <laughs> in the car and, you know, all through the thing. So we're in the Continental Theater watching this thing. And I think at the moment... I mean, he was kind of starting to slowly freak out all through the movie, as, as you would, because it's a great film. But the moment that, uh, and not in these minutes, but later when Ripley and Newt walk into the egg chamber in the, under, in the cooling system there, he, he just, I look over at him, and like all the color is kind of drained out of his face, and he's like, okay, uh, well, what's going to happen now? Like, just, <laughs> you can go ahead and tell me what's going to happen now. I'm like, well, you got to find out, man. And so then, at the, I remember back on the Sulaco in the big final fight, the queen's tail is whipping around, and in Dolby Surround, you can actually hear the tail behind you on the surround channels. And I remember he starts, like, darting over, his, looking over his shoulder and, like, really freaking out. And then after the movie was over, he didn't talk to me on the drive home at all. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so, so I think it worked. Wow. <laughs>
Um, so, so, do you want to talk about the transfer just for a minute? Like, have you guys? I don't think anybody's really talked about this no. on any of the shows. Sure, now's as um, good a time as any. Because, like you, I saw it in the theater, and then I think I had a VHS of it, pan and scan, as such as it is. It was one eight five, so it wasn't as bad as it could have been. But then uh, a laser disc. And then a DVD, and then a Blu-ray. But yeah. the Blu-ray, the new Blu-ray, is very different. Yeah, um, and I, so this hasn't been mentioned at all, really. No, okay. Uh -huh. um, so the, if you're a a, a video file, uh, one of the sort of pet peeves of uh, when film prints get transferred for Blu-ray or whatever format is that. They get recolor timed, and also they can have a digital noise reduction to basically remove uh, film grain and all that kind of stuff. So depending on where you fall on the issue, uh, you can either probably say like, oh, that's great. It looks better than it's ever been, and it's a restoration process, and the degraining process helps it look you know, as pristine as it looked when it came out. But uh, the other side of that argument could be that... Um, doing any sort of radical color grade alters the look of the film compared to what it looked like theatrically and any kind of degraining process um, looks digital and fake and basically uh, is a modern uh, trendy thing to do to, to get people to see it because they don't like the look of old 80s grain or whatever. I, that, that's part of the thing but it's, it's a fact you can look at the DVD and the VHS and just how the colors appear and then look at the Blu-ray version and there's been some significant adjustments to the colors of the film particularly in the in the shadows so there's a sort of the trendy teal blue mm -hmm. look you know that's popularized in some ways by michael bay films among everything where you push the shadows blue and you push the highlights uh orange or yellow and you get this kind of weird two-tone palette no matter what your colors scheme is in reality and they've definitely done that to aliens things that looked sort of neutral just sort of dark mm -hmm. in the original transfer, or even in a weird way, kind of a almost a purple, have been adjusted to be more blue in the Blu-ray. And and it didn't occur to me until uh, I was asked to do this, and then I was paying more attention to the colors, and then I got online, and sure enough, you can see side by side. I'm like, oh yeah, the Blu-ray looks significantly different than hmm. other iterations of the movie. So if that's the only version you've seen, not that it's a horrible detriment. I'm not saying it's a catastrophe or anything, but it is definitely a, a choice that looks different than how it looked in the theater. I remember when I saw the film in the theater thinking that it, it I mean, it did have a slightly more um, blue-ish cast to it, blue-gray, uh, but I remember that was, it gave it this really interesting kind of muddy, scary kind of feeling to it, you know? And I think... It's a movie that straddles the horror movie and then the Jewish whiz bang, 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 bang action movie. And it's like this transfer pushes it more towards, I guess, that action movie look than the horror look. I think so. And, and I suppose, you know, as 4K televisions become the norm, and, you know, there's uh, capitalism and consumerism seems to demand sort of a. a an unending incrementally higher resolution of things, even with if we can perceive it or not, the movie will probably get transferred again 10 years from now. And people will go, Oh, do you remember that old Blu-ray transfer that looked, yeah. that looks so 2012 or whatever. So, um, you know, yeah. And we'll, I, I've found that I've 
I have DVDs that I like better than the Blu-ray because there's some film artifact left in it and it has this sense of watching a movie versus watching some other thing, some video representation of a movie. Mm -hmm. So I guess it just it just sort of depends on what kind of a film fetishist you are. Yeah. yeah. If I could be permitted to, to nerd out just a little bit, like I did on the Alien Minute podcast, and I mm -hmm. guess that's the whole point of this thing, uh, is that um, on the commentary of the Blu-ray, James Cameron has gone on record to say that the, f the, the, that the film is, even by 80 standards, or you know, by 1986 standards, the film was grainy. And I do remember in the theater, even, I mean, I don't think I'm making up this memory. I do remember in the theater going, man, this movie looks a little grainy. Um, and apparently it was shot on a low light film stock that uh, very quickly got replaced. You know, that I guess Eastman Kodak uh, tweaked the formula, the chemical formula of the film and released the film stock again under the same number. Uh, in a better form, and I don't. It's either five two nine four or five two nine five. There's no real definitive answer, but both of those film stocks were the low light film stock that pretty much any movie from eighty four to eighty eight were shot in. So I I imagine it was maybe the early version of five two nine five, and that it quickly they realized how grainy it was, and they replaced it with something new, and that the bulk of the movie was shot, unfortunately, with this really grainy stock. So in some ways, the the digital grain removal that's done on the Blu-ray is maybe a little more warranted this time around. Mm -hmm. uh, it does look great. I mean, I'll, I think the transfer of the Blu-ray looks great. Um, and there's still a lot of grain there. It doesn't have that really um, plasticky look that some movies that have been over, yeah. over digitally uh, degrained right. look. It's not a catastrophe by any means. But, um, but I do recall the movie looking particularly grainy in the theater. Well, so we last left off with Hudson... Uh, deciding, you know, yeah, Bishop should go. It's a great idea, he says in this minute. And uh, Mitch and I talked a little bit about the fact that, yeah, it, it kind of is. It actually is a good idea. It actually is the uh, kind of the obvious idea. Maybe uh, Hudson could have toned down the excitement about it a little bit. But uh, nevertheless, that's what we're, that's where we're at. And, and we have Ripley reacting to the fact that this synthetic person who she's distrusted all this time is kind of starting to come through. And... Um, we move right into the line. I'm not. What does he say now? I've forgotten it. I'm not human. I, uh, I may be synthetic. Synthetic, but, I'm not, but I'm not. I'm not stupid. And it's in a very poignant, um, beautifully composed single yeah. shot. You know of him. I mean, it's very. It's in fact, it's it's a it's oddly more human because the previous shots in the shot reverse shots where he's talking to Ripley, he's kind of shot dead on, and he looks really kind of. There's something about him that looks very kind of neutral. And then this shot has this this little, there's something about it. Maybe it's a slightly up angle. There's something about it that's a much more um, comfortable, comforting, sympathetic kind of way of, of, of showing him. Right. And, of course, his rea he reacts to his own line, right? We get a little grin and a moment. Like, we get the combination of a grin and then also kind of maybe a feeling of like, oh, boy, okay. I guess I just committed to doing this. It's a very human reaction, yeah. though. And I can't tell. There's, I think there's multiple ways you could kind of look at that. Um, I think one of them is I think he might have realized he made a joke, uh, if you get what I mean. Uh -huh. Like, I don't think that he's, a, you know, he doesn't usually make jokes. He's an android. You know, it's like the data putting in the um, the emotion chip, right. Star Trek reference. Yeah, I think, and, I think Lance Henriksen or some, I think that might have been the – it's gone on record that that was the choice he made, that Bishop just realized he made a joke. That's what that little – Yeah, I can't remember if that's where I heard is. it. or I, I couldn't remember where I was thinking of that from, but it probably is. It's in the commentary, I bet. 
But I like that moment because you're right. The composition is more human and more sympathetic. And then we get a smile from the android. But then it's followed immediately by this sort of sense of fear, I think, that we get from him, too. I think he's like, okay, I made a joke, but now I've got to... I'm going to have to do this really scary shit. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's nice to see uh, these synthetics have evolved now to, like we talked a little bit about a sense of self-preservation that he must have had. Um, now we see it coming out like in an emotional way, which I think is very uh, fascinating. And then we have sparks and flashlights and exciting, exciting visual stuff happening, right? Yeah. Sci-fi, uh, yeah, sci-fi work being done. So always got to have a lot of sparks. Uh since I think this is the only minute that, that I'm going to be on where Bishop is, well, that's not true. He's going to be crawling through the ducts here. But I want to bring something up. Um, perhaps you guys have thought about this before, but the 80s in particular seemed to be the decade where uh, sequels reversed the moral compass of the antagonists. For instance, in 2001, how the computer was the antagonist. And then 2010 reversed that and made him a good guy. He, he was redeemed. And the same thing happens in Aliens, where Ash in the original now gets to be redeemed by Bishop. And if you think about Blade Runner and sort of the point of view of, of what it is to be human and, and, and sort of a sympathetic look at the replicants and other movies that came out in the 80s. And I'm just wondering, what was it about the 80s that made us reverse our, our uh, opinion about robots and computers and turn them into good guys. And even movies like Batteries Not Included and stuff. Suddenly, and Short Circuit. The, and, the and robots ro- were these cute little Robocop good even, right? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I I mean, well, when you bring up Robocop or Batteries Not Included, those are standalone films. Or I mean, They had sequels, but they were the first. But your well, question was, Robocop. was it a sequel question or was well, it a yeah, robot? That's what I, suppose, I was going to get at. I suppose that's a little bit of a, a loaded question. I don't know if it has to do with the idea of a sequel or if there's just something about the perception of robots and artificial intelligence in particular. But it seems to be there was very much a trend in the 80s to turn something that was considered evil or sinister into something good. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that's... To me, my answer was going to be that it's more of a sequel issue where you're having to play upon the audience's expectations and then reverse them, right? So in this case, they definitely play up the possibility that Bishop is going to be just like Ash. There's multiple times where they play play up how creepy he can be. They show him doing the same things that Ash was doing, like investigating the facehugger, acting really creepy about that with... And the lighting even is very sinister in that scene, that particular scene with Spunkmeyer earlier. So there's multiple times where they're trying to remind you, oh yeah, you remember Ash? Look how creepy this guy is. And then you have Ripley literally reminding us of it. So I think that the idea is simply reversing you know, what we saw in the last movie. I'm not sure, I guess 2010, boy, I haven't seen that movie in a long time. <laughs> I suppose it could be a similar thing. But then you mentioned RoboCop. So RoboCop's not a sequel. So we're not talking about that in that context. And it does, it takes, we actually have a pretty positive view of a robot here. Yeah, but of course think, he's, he's also partially human. But I think that's what, I don't know. It's funny. I think about ET in terms of aliens and I would almost say that like, I don't know if I have to, have to think through this, but um, were, were the eighties more sympathetic towards uh, aliens as well? as they were towards robots? I get, yeah, I think, you know, the trend obviously started with Close Encounters in the late 70s where, you know, that whole film was marketed upon this mystery of, of the aliens. And 
I don't think until that time there had really been much of a science fiction film that portrayed the aliens as the good guys. Except that for stood still. Well, yeah. yeah. My favorite Martian, of course. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But but that but you're right. It's the idea of playing upon the expectations and then reversing them or subverting them. And maybe because that was so popular, maybe there was this just some sort of interconnected change in the pop culture that can't really be pinpointed or described, but that that just sort of started to flow storytelling wise. This... Yeah, I, I guess the Terminator obviously was uh, the, the, they flipped it in that one too, right? The first. Terminator yeah, I was... wanted to bring that up. That in a way, sure. Bishop is 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 sort of like a a little bit of a template for Cameron with Terminator Two and taking what was the antagonist in the first film and then flip flopping that. Of course, so we're talking about like the social nature of the '80s versus the '70s, for instance. The 70s, we were getting this advanced, you know, advanced technology was starting to come on. The idea of the computer and um, even, I guess, ideas of artificial intelligence that we got from uh, Arthur Clarke and Stanley Kubrick with 2001, uh, super mysterious, right? Like, definitely you could play upon people's paranoia if you're writing a movie using that. By 1986, you had a computer in your house. A lot of people did. Right. Less paranoid feelings towards technology. Everybody and even was... with the, you know, Reaganomics kind of... Um, positivity about advanced technology, I think that we saw a little of that too. That had to have been bleeding into it a little bit. It was a little, you know, and then I think we get it reversed back in the 90s in some ways. Even Spielberg reverses his views of, uh, well, this is later than the 90s, but even Spielberg reverses his views of aliens by making War of the Worlds. Right. You know, so everybody's kind of flip-flopping between decades, it seems. But I definitely think the 80s were a little bit more uh, optimistic as far as technology. So, probably not as much to play upon as far as paranoia. I mean, short circuit for Christ's sake. Uh, it's like the nicest robot you ever met, right? So he's everybody's friend. Blue Thunder's the meanest helicopter you ever met. Yeah, that seems to be a Blue Thunder's almost a seventies movie though, isn't it? It's like it feels like a, it totally feels like a seventies movie. Yeah. I, I hasten yeah. to call him this is just me. I hasten to call anything made um before 1981 to be an 80s movie yeah movies that were made in 80 and 81 are still 70s movies yeah, to me I agree. yeah I agree. that's probably true. I totally agree and and uh 91 is still an 80s movie absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. um so this shot let's talk for a second about this shot of the of the of the the tube being burst into with the sparks and the flashlight and everything um it's it's going to lead up to this shot that everybody remembers from this movie and people I always felt like there was people would get great pleasure from these shots of him crawling and how it's the simplicity of how it's lit and how it's I mean pleasure maybe being the wrong thing it might create claustrophobia but there's something really kind of magical about it and yet it's so simple and I think it starts with this very simple idea of the sparks right yeah yeah I agree and and um you know, we'll be able to talk about it again in the next couple minutes because he just keeps crawling through that thing. It's kind of funny how it's it's used as a parallel editing device. You know, like we need to end this scene. Oh, let's just cut back to Bishop. But um, but yeah, I mean, certainly if 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 you have a problem with uh, claustrophobia, it's not going to be the most um, palatable moment to watch. Um, but in, in terms of the, I, I mean, what what would you like me to talk about? Like the 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 the. the the sparks of it? Yeah, I just the... think it's it's just such a simple. It's just you know movie magic. It's a very simple idea, and yet it, it it the lights are the source of the shot, and it's in this tube, so there's naturally reflecting and light bouncing back and forth, and it's just you know it's just a it's a filmmaker going, oh yeah, I know how to make something that's going to look really cool. Yeah, well, even the shot before that, which is just 
uh, Vasquez and Ripley and, and Bishop sitting there on the floor as he's kind of getting himself mm-hmm. into the tube. It's just this very kind of functional shot that, that no movement of the camera and it's kind of up at about eye level looking down at him. Very simple three shot. But you start to think about it like, what more do you need than that? And same deal down in the tube. There's really only so many things that the camera can do when you're down there. So it's just this, James Cameron is very good at just being functional in the Mm -hmm. sense that it's never really that showy, especially compared to Ridley Scott with Alien in terms of sort of the composition and the showiness. So the camera's always just kind of where it needs to be to tell the story. And um, this scene is probably a perfect example of that, is there's nothing flashy about it, but once you get down in that tube, (laughs) like you look around at all the claustrophobics in the audience and they're like, get me out of here. (laughs) This would have been the part of the movie if I had seen it in the theater where I would have been going flush and saying okay maybe i'm gonna go use the restroom you let me know if i'm gonna miss anything here like your uh your relative was this is the scariest part of the movie to me well, by far it looks so tiny when he's even just when he's getting uh-huh. ready to go down into it like when you're talking about that high uh-huh. angle shot and and he's starting to crawl down and then the business with the pistol i think is just like that's just a brilliant cap to the scene where she hands him a gun and he just hands it back over to Ripley like what am I get what good is yeah. this going to do for me without it really any fanfare it's no, not it's not really it's a, a big moment it's, it's just a, a thing yeah it's in that three shot but it says so much about his character and it is it's funny and, too and Vasquez's character when you think about oh, it yeah. like she's of course she's going to give you she thinks everybody needs to have a gun you know so it makes sense that she would automatically just hand him one and he would look <laughs> yeah. at it and go no thanks and she doesn't react to the fact that he didn't take I mean she had to notice I think it's a great little comic beat. There. Do you think, and I, you know, this just occurred to me right now, it's not in my notes, but do you think that at this moment that Vasquez has a newfound respect for Bishop? The fact that he's doing this and putting himself in a danger? I mean, they're, you know, she says, Vaya con Dios, man, as she signs. It seems to me suddenly like she's got this, like, you know what, Bishop's. Bishop's okay. He's all right. Yeah. Did, did she have a problem with him before? Well, I don't know. I think everybody on the ship sort of had a little bit of a problem with Bishop. Hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, they play up the Ripley issue with him so yeah. much. I kind of always thought he was just one of the guys well, to everyone I don't know. else. Even the even the even the uh, knife business with Hudson's hand, you know, and, uh-huh. and yeah, I mean, yeah, he does that in cahoots with with, with Drake. Else. Like yeah. they they play he plays the yeah. joke on yeah. Hudson well, I, with everyone else. That's so. the thing. I mean, I think they definitely sort of consider him less less than. That he's the servant, and 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 actually, I w- I did watch the commentary, and Lance Henriksen and Bill Paxton were joking because I guess Bill Paxton, in character as Hudson, kept saying like, "Yeah, man, send in the doll, send the doll to do it, <laughs> like not me." Right. <laughs> and uh, the doll, yeah, is terrible. I know, <laughs> but maybe at this moment they find they they do, especially even Ripley, I think, is starting to come around to think that you know, yeah, he's totally. okay. Yeah. So we go to this crawling shot. Well, Which, before that, yeah. we get the seal-in shot. Like, so you mentioned the Via Diaz. Oh, yeah. But right before that, I yeah. think, is another great moment. And I think I remember Hen- Henriksen saying he improv this. But right as it's about to close, he just goes, watch your fingers. I think that's great. Because that, 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 you know, he can't allow a human being to be harmed. It's almost like a really mm-hmm. benign, right. like, nod at that. But I think he, I think he improv that. I might be wrong about that. But no, I, I think, think it's he, a nice little moment. I think he did. Yeah, it's great. Again, yeah. it just makes it real. Yeah. But the shot, so now we get to the shot where he's crawling, which is just, it's so simply lit, right? It's lit by the source coming up into his, so he's kind of got monster lighting because it's coming from below. It's moving at this, I don't know, there's just something about that shot that is magical. It's like what movies do. 
put you in a space where you would never be able to be in, move through that space, and the fact that it's practical and not some CG um, thing just makes it feel like he's really in that tube and he's really crawling through that thing. Yeah, I do remember, I, you know, the first time I saw it, it was with my two best friends in high school, and we were enjoying every minute of it. We were big fans of the original. But I do remember at that moment in that shot me looking over to my friends and we were we were all like oh jesus <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know like in, in that way of like this movie's really good you know it's doing all these things that are just making us sweat bullets and we love it at this point in the director's cut we go back to the sentry business right this is the second sequence with the sentry guns yeah and this is the sequence where at this point in the sequence you start seeing not just the people watching listening the screens and the tv screens seeing it but there are shots actually inside with the sentry guns and yep. with the aliens being blasted to pieces. And splattering acid all over the place, yeah. Which you would think would cause another problem, maybe. <laughs> would it not? You know, you've sealed off this this area, but that much acid's probably going to open it up, maybe some other doors. But I, I didn't even think about that till just now. It's not that that's really relevant to what I we're talking about. I have problems with the point of view of it. I, yeah. have, I have problems going actually into the space... And showing the cam, showing the guns, and showing the aliens getting hit, versus restricting it to the people in the command center, you know, with their screens. And I mean, they have a TV screen; you could see a lot of that stuff on TV. I don't know. There, I don't think it makes it more dangerous somehow. I think it makes it. I don't think it does much. Actually, it doesn't thrill me very much. Yeah, I, I don't either. And I think that's why it was probably an easy choice for something to cut out because it doesn't really add much to the tension of the movie in fact it, it does just kind of slow it down it's it's almost exposition just to show you that how many of them there are out there yeah. um which i i guess in that respect it's it's okay but yeah it's not a scene that i that i personally miss at and then all. they catch this lucky break that the creatures just happen to decide to back off at the same time that they run out of ammunition yeah mm-hmm. and it's kind of like well i don't know i don't know it's an idea i don't know how compelling an idea it is yeah, it doesn't really say much for, uh, now that you put it that way, it doesn't really say much for um, the the other bit of information we're kind of getting from this that I mentioned last week was is that we're getting like a tactical element to the aliens, right? So the fact that they actually tactically retreat shows that they have a little bit more strategic ability than we thought. But th- then you're kind of undercutting that by saying, well, if they would have just waited a couple more seconds, yeah, they right. wouldn't have had to retreat. Yeah. So they actually screwed up. Yeah. But I I, li- I do like the body count. I, I like getting a body count with the aliens because I was saying to Mitch last week, I think that this is a point in the movie where we might need to be reminded we've had all these other threads going on. We might need to be reminded of the, the this is war element of the movie, like that we're against an army here and maybe having... Um, some pawns, so to speak, be knocked off one after the other tells us, you know, well, they're not, this isn't doing anything. This isn't really putting a dent in anything. So it raises the stakes in a way or reminds you of the stakes, I should say. Uh, what doesn't do is raise the stakes, like you're saying. And we could probably come up with some other ways to remind the people here that doesn't take so much time. Of course, this is tech stuff. This is fun tech stuff. And this is so where we're in James Cameron land again, where he, um, of course, is going to put this back into the movie. Because the sentry guns, there, I, I agree, they're a cool idea, and I think that he wanted. He's like, that's a cool idea. I wish it would have been in the movie. And so, and honestly, it's one of those things that you can't just cut one little bit in. You have to have a whole setup thing for the whole thing. So it actually required him to put in a next, you know, like what ten minutes total screen time probably for all of the sentry gun stuff that we see. So it's a big decision to put it back in. Not one bullet hit 
on those aliens though has the impact of running that one over <laughs> you know when she, exactly. when she runs it over with the with apc whatever that thing's called yeah um that's just so much more interesting <laughs> so I'm, i don't know why but it sure is. and you know even if she ran over or, or she ran over one and then hit another one another way some way they made it a little different. at least like you're showing us that this isn't the end like we're in the in the movie alien the one dies it's the movie's over right here if you have a couple of pawns get knocked off, then that tells the audience, okay, these aren't these are just pawns. This isn't ending the game here. There's a lot more out there to deal yeah. with. As long as that is getting across to the audience, I do think that's important to keep the audience aware of that at all times. But uh, yeah, this takes an awful lot of time. There's an awful lot of business that goes into this if that's all you're getting out of it. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen that director's cut, but I, if I do recall something that was in that sequence that um, somewhat important is. I think there's a shot of Burke switching off a monitor or something, sort of kind of dum de dum 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 don't mind mm-hmm. me, that's basically foreshadowing that he's setting up the whole in the, face, in the, 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 mm-hmm. you know, the face hugger thing. I, I could be remembering that wrong, but I think there is a shot where he like switches off a monitor. I don't recall. In one maybe. of those shots. It might not have been in this particular minute, but one of those. Mm-hmm. Well, that's about all I've got for this minute. Everybody else? No, that's all I got. Nope, I'm good. Hey, Todd, is there anywhere that you'd want to tell people to find you online? Uh, since I am not a uh, podcast host, I don't have anything like that to really uh, talk. But I do have a website that's toddnorris.net. That's just my short films and uh, things like that. And then Mitch and I uh, have Jetpack Pictures, and it's uh, jetpackpics.com, which is P-I-X. And uh, the short films we've done together are on there. All right. You can find us at AlienMinute.com, on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast, or on Twitter at AlienMinutePod. And we'd like to thank uh, the guys over at Star Wars Minute again, Alex and Pete. Thanks again for loaning us this format, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow for Minute number 87.